very good of you to host me here, my lord. It is no problem, Jennifer Harker, and please, call me Dracula. Welcome to my home. Come freely, go safely, and leave something of the happiness you bring. That's very kind of you, but I'd like to get straight to observing if that's possible. Down to business, straight away, I see. You are a very keen young astrophysicist, and I think you will enjoy your employment here as my personal astronomer. Go to the tall tower above my rooms at any time you want. Any time? But that's impossible. Not at all, young lady. This is, after all, the land of perpetual night. You will have unparalleled access to the splendor of the heavens. That's incredible. You will understand later, my pretty one. Understand the world of Dracula. Have you ever thought of listening to the Jodcast? The what? The Jodcast. It helps me understand the world and the heavens. I've got an episode here. Do you want to listen? No, no, no. I, I couldn't. It's okay, because then Ian Morrison can give us tips for observing the Transylvanian night sky. Here it is. No. The Jodcast, reviving the world economy, with Megan Argo, David Alt, Jen Gupta, Stuart Lowe, Ian Morrison, and Roy Smits. The Jodcast. October 2009 edition. Hello and welcome to the Jodcast from our studios here in Manchester. Yes, we are gearing up for Jodcast Live by having our three presenters actually in the same room together for once. Yeah, hi Dave. Hi everyone. And as I said there, we're getting ready for Jodcast Live, which is going to be, as you all know, on the 21st of November, starting at 1pm. And there are still tickets available, so please get in touch if you want to have a tour of Jodrell Bank and to see the December edition of the Jodcast being recorded before your very eyes. And if you want to do that, just go along to the website at www.jodcast.net and fill in the contact form. So in this show, we will be finding out about radio interferometry and the new instruments coming online soon. And Ian Morrison will be telling us what there is to see in the October night sky. But first, before all of that, here's the news with Megan Argo. In the news this month. First evidence of a solid exoplanet. Discovery of water on the moon. And first results from a panoramic survey of the Andromeda galaxy. Using various techniques, astronomers have, over the last decade, discovered many hundreds of planets outside our own solar system. Most of these techniques are indirect, because planets are much fainter than the stars they orbit, and so are very hard to detect directly. Because their effects are easier to spot, larger planets are easier to find, but smaller and smaller planets are being discovered as techniques and technology improve. One of the smallest exoplanets known to date is Coro 7b, a planet discovered by the Coro satellite in February 2009, orbiting an otherwise unremarkable 11th magnitude star, catalogued as TYC 4799-1733-1, located almost 500 light-years away in the constellation of Monoceros. Most of the known exoplanets are thought to be larger versions of Jupiter, likely to be large gas giants, but new observations of Coro 7b suggest that it is far more like our own Earth. A team of astronomers led by Didier Quellos at the Geneva Observatory in Switzerland used the HARPS instrument on ESO's 3.6-metre telescope at La Silla Observatory in Chile, 
to observe the Coro-7 system and try to determine the mass of Coro-7b. HARPS, or the High Accuracy Radial Velocity Planet Searcher, is a high-resolution spectrograph which enables astronomers to measure the tiny changes in velocity of a star as it is gently tugged by the gravitational pull of its orbiting planets. These velocity shifts are extremely small, so very accurate spectrographs are needed to see the effects. In the case of Coro-7b, the planet is so close to its parent star that it completes one orbit every 20.4 hours, blocking out a tiny fraction of the star's light for just one hour during each orbit. Because the planet is so small, the team had to obtain more than 70 hours of observations to see the tiny changes in the star spectrum that would tell them about the planet. What the team found was that Coro-7b is one of the lightest exoplanets known, with a mass of just 4.8 times that of the Earth, putting it in the category of so-called super-Earths. Since the planet directly transits the star, passing directly between the star and us, astronomers have already been able to determine that the planet's radius is less than twice that of Earth. If you know both the mass and the radius of a planet, you can calculate its density. The team did this and found that Coro-7b has a density of 5.5 grams per cubic centimetre, very similar to the density of the Earth. This suggests that Coro-7b is a rocky planet, not a gas giant like Jupiter, and is likely to be composed mainly of silicates, with a small iron core, the first time such a determination has been made for such a small exoplanet. As well as determining the mass and density of Coro-7b, the team also discovered a new planet, Coro-7c, which is slightly larger, with a mass of 8.4 times that of Earth. Unfortunately, this planet does not directly transit the star, so its radius and hence density cannot be determined. The research will be published in the journal Astronomy and Astrophysics on October the 22nd. It is thought that the Moon was formed about 4.5 billion years ago by the collision of a Mars-sized object with the Earth. The heat from the impact and subsequent accretion of material created a magma ocean which would have caused the loss of most of the volatile materials from the surface, so-called because they have very low boiling points and evaporate easily. In a press conference at NASA on Thursday the 24th of September, results were announced from three separate spacecraft showing evidence of water on the lunar surface in far greater quantities than has previously been seen. Two of these spacecraft, Cassini and Deep Impact, observed the Moon as they passed by on the way to other parts of the solar system, while the third, India Space Research Organization's Chandrayaan-1, observed the lunar surface from orbit around the Moon. What each of these probes detected was an absorption feature in the infrared part of the spectrum at a wavelength of about 3 microns, a wavelength characteristic of absorption by hydroxyl, a hydrogen atom joined together with an oxygen atom. Add another hydrogen to hydroxyl and you produce H2O, water, which also absorbs infrared light near 3 microns. It has been known since the observations of the Lunar Prospector spacecraft in the late 1990s that there is an estimated 10 to 300 million metric tons of water ice buried in permanently shadowed craters at the lunar poles. These new results, however, show that the hydroxyl and water signature is in fact present over large parts of the lunar surface, not just at the poles. Launched on October the 22nd, 2008, India's Chandrayaan-1 carried several scientific instruments on board. One of these was the Moon Mineralogy Mapper, or M3, built by NASA, a spectrograph operating in the infrared part of the spectrum. Although Chandrayaan-1 sadly ceased operations last month, it had already returned many months of usable data from the instruments on board. When the data from the M3 experiment was analysed, researchers found absorption features consistent with patterns expected for water and hydroxyl 
over most of the lunar surface. Although M3 only probed the top few millimetres of the lunar regolith, they found a strong hydroxyl signature across the surface, stronger toward the lunar poles at higher latitudes, and varying throughout the lunar cycle, suggesting that the sun has some effect on the distribution. According to the scientists, the most likely origin for this water is a reaction between the protons in the solar wind and oxygen atoms already present in the lunar dirt. The M3 results were subsequently confirmed by observations by the Deep Impact spacecraft, which also has instruments that observe in the infrared, and regularly uses observations of the Moon for calibration purposes, and also in old data from the Cassini spacecraft, which observed the Moon during a flyby in 1999. The data show that there may be as much as 0.1 to 1% water by weight in the regolith, in contrast to the rocks brought back by the Apollo missions, which were incredibly dry. This is roughly equivalent to a litre of water per cubic metre of regolith, but, since it is only present in the top few millimetres of soil, extracting usable amounts of water would require processing a very large surface area. The results from the three spacecraft were announced together to coincide with the publication of three papers in the journal Science on September the 24th, and come just two weeks before another spacecraft, NASA's LCROSS, the Lunar Crater Observation and Sensing Satellite, is due to crash into the Moon's surface near the South Pole in an attempt to kick up water ice buried in the regolith in craters which rarely see sunlight. Edwin Hubble's original classification of galaxies into various types, based on their visible shapes and structures, has been a feature of extragalactic astronomy since the 1920s. The scheme, originally thought to depict an evolutionary sequence, has two major groups, spiral galaxies with a small central bulge, spiral arms and possibly a central bar, and elliptical galaxies that are more spherical in structure, with no spiral arms or disk. There are, however, many galaxies which do not fit into this scheme, being neither spherical or disk-like, and these are usually lumped together into a class called the Irregulars. These disturbed galaxies are surprisingly common, and many are the result of collisions or close encounters between galaxies. Such interactions happen frequently throughout the history of the universe, but it is also going on right now in our own galactic neighbourhood. The nearest major galaxy to our own is the Andromeda Galaxy, otherwise known as M31, slightly larger than the Milky Way, and located 2.5 million light-years away. It is heading towards the Milky Way at some 300 kilometres per second, and, in a few billion years, the two galaxies will eventually collide. In some cosmological models, Galaxies grow over time by disrupting and absorbing smaller galaxies in such collisions. In such violent processes, a significant number of stars should be tossed out of the galaxies involved, forming a diffuse halo which can provide clues to the merger history of a galaxy, if they are bright enough to be detected. In research reported in the journal Nature on the 3rd of September, a team of astronomers led by Alan McConaughey at the Hertzberg Institute of Astrophysics in Canada reported a panoramic survey of Andromeda and its nearby neighbour, the Triangulum Galaxy, or M33, which shows clear evidence of the remnants of galactic mergers. Detecting this evidence is difficult, as these stellar populations are extremely faint and distributed over a huge area, so the astronomers are using the Megacam camera on the 3.6-metre Canadia-France-Hawaii telescope to build up a sensitive wide-field survey of the Andromeda Galaxy and its companions. The so-called Pan-Andromeda Archaeological Survey will cover more than 300 square degrees when completed in 2011, but has already produced results showing the vast extent of M31's stellar halo, covering an area of nearly 100 times the classical optical disk of the galaxy. These early results from the survey lend support to the idea that large galaxies build up through the accretion of smaller galaxies. 
The halo stars discovered away from the disk of M31 are unlikely to have been formed at their present positions, because there is not enough gas there for star formation to occur. The most likely explanation is that they have been thrown out in a tidal interaction. Another piece of evidence that they are relics from previous galactic mergers is that the stars in this faint population are often located in huge arcs, loops, and other diffuse structures, which are characteristic of the gravitational disruption of dwarf galaxies undergoing a merger with a larger galaxy. As well as lending support to the hierarchical model of galaxy formation, the team's results also show a new diffuse stellar structure around M33, M31's largest companion galaxy. This newly discovered feature matches up with a distortion in the disk of M33, as well as a mild warp seen in the outer disk of M31, adding to the evidence of a past tidal interaction between the two galaxies. And finally, launched on the 14th of May this year, the Planck spacecraft released the results of its first light survey during September. Since its launch, along with the Herschel telescope, Planck has been undergoing testing, commissioning and calibration of its instruments, making its first observations on the 13th of August. Designed to detect the cosmic microwave background, the relic radiation left over from the Big Bang, Planck has several survey instruments on board. In order to maximise their chances of detecting the tiny fluctuations in the temperature of the CMB, the sensitive detectors must be cooled down to almost absolute zero, a temperature of minus 273 Kelvin. Starting on August the 13th, the satellite began a first light survey to verify the stability and calibration of the instruments. The survey lasted two weeks, during which Planck continuously surveyed the sky, scanning a strip 15 degrees wide. Following the completion of this test observation, routine operations began on August the 27th. Full-time operations will continue for the next 15 months, with the first all-sky map expected to be assembled after approximately six months. Thanks for that, Megan. Now, this month, we have some interviews conducted by Jen and Roy. So, Jen, do you want to tell us what uh, what you've got for us? So, a couple of weeks ago, Roy and I were in Oxford for the European Radio Interferometry School. And while we were there, we managed to catch up with Robert Lang, who gave us a good explanation of exactly what radio interferometry is. This week, Jennifer and myself are in Oxford to attend a school on radio interferometry, which goes to show that even astronomers have to go to school. And with us here is Professor Robert Lang from ESO. So Robert, can you explain to us briefly, give an introduction about interferometry? Okay, well I'll try. Firstly, the rationale for doing interferometry. As you may well know, the resolution, the fineness of detail that we can observe an astronomical object is set by something we call the diffraction limit, which is proportional to the wavelength you're observing divided by the diameter of the telescope you're using to observe. So for something outside the Earth's atmosphere observing invisible light like the Hubble Space Telescope, that number is a little bit under a tenth of an arc second under the best circumstances. At radio wavelengths, because the wavelengths are so much longer than those of visible light, the resolution that we can get, the detail that we can observe, is far, far worse, given that the largest steerable dishes that we can build are something like 100 metres across, like uh, like the Lovell telescope. So we have to find a way around this, and the technique that we use, interferometry, is actually not a very new technique. It was actually pioneered in astronomical applications at optical wavelengths by Michelson uh, right at the beginning of the 20th century. Um, So what we do instead of building big dishes is that we combine the signals from a number of locations. 
In many ways, some of you may have seen something like the young slit experiment in, in optics, where you have two slits some way apart and you shine light at them, uh, laser light perhaps, and you see the fringe pattern that's produced. That's actually doing interferometry in the optical. In the radio, we don't do it like that. We do it with separate telescopes. So we use networks of telescopes, arrays we call them, um, of separated radio telescopes, each of which might be a dish like the level, and we combine the signals from them. And what we're doing in theoretical terms is um, measuring the correlation of the signal from an astronomical source at one location on the ground compared with another location. Um, so we take those two signals, we multiply them together, and that's the basic signal that we use to um, derive our image for radio interferometry. And so when you look at an array, what you'll see on the ground is a collection of often um, dishes that look like the Lovell telescope, communications type antennas and so on, but separated by large distances and connected together by, uh, by optical fibers. We've learned here about using interferometry to make very high resolution images by using something called synthesis. Can you explain how that works? Yes. I mean... There are two ways that you can improve the image that you make of the sky using an interferometer. You get very limited information if you only have one pair of telescopes. In fact, all you can do is effectively measure one sine wave across the sky. So what we do is to, to, to get a detailed image, there are actually two things. Firstly, we increase the number of the telescopes. Um, so that we have a large number of different telescopes and we use, we combine the signals from each separate pairing of telescopes. And that together gives us the information that we need to make an image of the whole sky. That we call a snapshot. That's something that we do over a short time. But that's not the only thing you can do. To build up a synthesized image, you also use the rotation of the Earth. And if you think about it, looking at the Earth from, from the perspective of your radio source, and think about what a pair of antennas looks like as the Earth rotates, what we call the baseline, that's the vector between the two antennas, changes with time as the Earth rotates. In fact, it sweeps out an ellipse. Um, so we get different information at different times from each of our pair of antennas. Um, and the combination of that and having many antennas and, and, and many baselines is what gives us the detail that we need to build up an image which is effectively as good as a single element, um, a single telescope, which has the diameter equal to the maximum separation of, of our antennas on the ground. So some of the interferometers that the listeners might know about are the Very Large Array in New Mexico. That's quite a famous one in the film Contact. But... We seem to be at quite an exciting time for a radio interferometry. There's quite a lot of new instruments coming online or upgrades to the current instruments. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. I mean, let's start with the VLA. Um, the, the one thing I didn't like about contact was Jodie Foster plugging a telephone into one of the um, um, antennas and, um, and listening to the sky through it. That's one thing we can't do, unfortunately. But yes, the VLA, um, the very large array in New Mexico, has been around since about 1980, but is, um, as you mentioned, just going through a big upgrade, as is Merlin Jodrell Bank, turning into eMerlin, and they're doing the same thing. Instead of um, a very narrow bandwidth signal, which we were restricted to in, in earlier times, we've now linked uh, all of these telescopes with optical fibers, and that allows a very much larger bandwidth and a much larger data rate. Um, so what you can do is you can, you can use a larger range of frequencies at once. 
So instead of being stuck with um, 50 megahertz of, of your spectrum at once, you're now observing something like 4 or even 8 gigahertz in some cases. That makes your telescope much, much more sensitive, and it also means that you can observe many spectral lines, which were previously in bits of the spectrum that you couldn't access. So it's a huge increase in performance for both the Very Large Array and for Merlin. But also, we're going in different directions in frequency. We're going to both very high frequencies and very low frequencies. And the project I'm employed on at the moment is ALMA, which is Atacama Large Millimeter Submillimeter Array. And because of, um, of the name, you can tell that this is something that observes at very short wavelengths, millimeters to a third of a millimeter. It does a very different sort of science from E-Merlin and, uh, and EVLA. We're interested very much in what we call the cool universe, which is material which is colder than the surface of a star, so things like dust clouds, protostellar clouds, planet formation, the initial f phases of the evolution of galaxies. And this is um, an array that's being built in the desert in northern Chile. It's at an altitude of 5,000 meters, and it's an array of eventually 66 dishes. Um, so it's a very large-scale, basically a billion-dollar project, uh, and we're just at the point of starting serious commissioning. The reason it's on this very high site is to keep outside of as much of the Earth's water vapor as possible, because the thing that really kills you at high frequencies is, um, is atmospheric water, and that means you want to go as high as possible. It's not feasible to go into space with an array of that, um, of that type yet, far too expensive, but um, you can get about outside about half of the Earth's water, well, perhaps more than that, at a high site, and, um, and therefore that's why we go to the, the trouble and expense of, of building ALMA there. So watch this space. We'll be getting science from ALMA shortly. At the other end, there are a number of arrays which are interested in very low radio frequencies, so something between um, 10 and a couple of hundred megahertz. The science drivers there include being able to look right back at uh, the epoch of reionization. So when the, um, when the universe went from being neutral to being ionized and the first structures like galaxies started to form, really high redshift around about 10 or 11. And you can do that by looking at the line of neutral hydrogen, which we know from uh, observations close to us, but redshifted back. Well, if it's redshifted, it means it's at very low radio frequencies. Um, and so we really want to build low-frequency arrays. And one of them, which is um, possibly the most interesting for Europeans, is LOFAR, which is the array which is being built initially in Holland, but with outstations in the UK and Germany and various other places. That, again, is something that's going to be starting observing very soon. It's got its first preliminary images, and that, too, will be very exciting. Low-frequency radio astronomy is where radio astronomy really started in the 1940s, but now we can do vastly better because of increases in, um, in computing power, um, and we can do things like getting rid of radio interference. Uh, one of the problems of low-frequency radio astronomy are things like mobile phones and, uh, and FM radio, which are tediously in the middle of our observing band. So is there anything special about ELMA that, that makes it more versatile than other telescopes? Well, there's one thing in particular that you'll notice if you if you look at pictures of, of how ELMA is supposed to work, which is that the antennas are moved around. We have a total of 190 pads for these uh, these 66 antennas. And the reason we do that is to have something which acts as a sort of astronomical zoom lens. We can have the antennas really very, very close together, almost touching, in fact, 
if we want to observe a large field and large-scale structure of something like a very extended galactic H2 region forming stars. On the other hand, if we want to do very fine-scale, detailed observations, then we need to move the antennas as far apart as possible. And in fact, our maximum separation is around about 15 kilometers. And the way we move them is we put them on the back of a very large, very expensive machine uh, with wonderful German engineering. Um, in fact, the, we have two transporters. They're, they're called Otto and Laura, after the director of the company that made them and his wife. And they will basically pick up the antennas from one pad and move them to another in a sort of continuous sequence. So we can move one or two antennas a day. The VLA does something very similar, in fact, except it does it on railway tracks rather than, um, rather than roads. Perhaps I should also mention on versatility that all of these telescopes, we want to be versatile in frequency. So we can switch very quickly with ALMA from a rather low frequency to a very high one. And the reason we do that is that our highest observing frequencies, which are something like 950 gigahertz, are terribly vulnerable to weather. And we can only observe um, under the best possible atmospheric conditions. So we do something we call dynamic scheduling, which is to keep track of the weather and then if the weather gets particularly good, we schedule a high-frequency observation, which has high scientific priority. And a low frequency for ELMA, what do we think about then? Well, the low frequency, lowest frequency we have currently implemented is around um, 80 to 130 gigahertz, uh, or around about a millimeter, which doesn't sound like a very low frequency compared with LOFAR or even E-Merlin. Um, we do actually have plans to, to go a bit lower. The plan is actually to cover all of the atmospheric transmission windows between 30 gigahertz, one centimeter and uh, wavelength and 0.3 millimeters wavelength. When I talk about atmospheric windows, if you look at a, a plot of how the atmosphere transmits radio radiation, you'll discover that there are bands in there where nothing gets through, even on the best possible sites. Um, and we don't bother building receivers to observe there. We build receivers only where the oxygen and water are, are relatively benign and, and, and the radio waves actually get through. So these projects take must take a very long time to implement, to plan and everything. So there must be plans in place for the next generation. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, it's certainly true that plans do take a long time to come to fruition. In fact, I think if you looked at the antecedents of the ALMA project, the earliest is probably around about 1982, um, although it's been going as a, a serious construction project only since 2000. Um, typically, these projects take 10 years to construct, but there's a long period of debate um, that goes on before they even get started, and the money has to be found from somewhere. So I think possibly the most important new development in radio astronomy will be the square kilometre array. This is um, uh, going to be a, a low to intermediate frequency array, so very similar frequencies to the bottom end of E-Merlin and the top end of low-far frequencies, um, so something like um, 100 megahertz to perhaps um, 2 gigahertz in the first instance, maybe a bit higher. And um, as you can guess from the name, uh, what's happening there is it's a push to much, much larger collecting area. So now we've made the receivers essentially as good as possible, and we can't really do any better from serious theoretical limits. Um, the next thing we can do is increase the collecting area and the number of antennas. We also want to do this on a very, very good site, which for low-frequency radio astronomy means a site that has as little radio interference as possible. And so the two sites that are currently under consideration for this, this array are uh, in South Africa and in the Western Australian desert.
In parallel with that, we obviously thinking about doing radio astronomy in space. One of the things that you can do in order to increase your resolution is to increase the separation of your antennas. Now, obviously, the size of the Earth limits the separation of the antennas. So the uh, the logical thing is to put antennas in space and combine them with those on the ground, which are generally much bigger. And so the next advance in that is going to be a Japanese mission, so-called VSOP-2, on the on the Astro-G satellite, which should launch in a in a few years' time. But there are even very ambitious plans for building radio astronomy arrays on the back of the moon, um, which gets rid of the interference problem fairly conclusively, mm-hmm. but is also incredibly expensive. So don't hold your breath for that one. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned Japan is getting involved. Uh, it sounds like a lot of different countries all over the world are getting more and more involved in astronomy, radio astronomy. Is that a trend? Is that a development we are seeing in the last years? Very much so, and I think it's a recognition that these big billion-dollar scale projects cannot be afforded by a single country on their own anymore, even the United States. Um, so ALMA is a um, trilateral collaboration now from between Europe, um, where a large number of institutes, in fact, are involved in building pieces of it, including several in the UK. Some of this, in fact, came from Jodrell Bank. Also, um, the United States, the National Radio Astronomy Observatory, and their collaborators in Canada. And finally, our colleagues in Japan, as you mentioned, um, and uh, they've also joined forces with Taiwan. So it's almost a global project now. There are very few nations that, that aren't contributing. And the same will be true of the Square Kilometer Array. You cannot afford to build more than one of these, or at least more than one per hemisphere of these these big projects. Um, there are good reasons for building one in each hemisphere, because you can't see the whole sky from one hemisphere. But certainly the days in which each country built its own array, even one as powerful as the VLA, will soon be behind us. Thank you very much, Robert, for this interview. My pleasure. It's always good to try and explain these concepts to people and I hope sometimes that you get the concepts of interferometry across a little bit more clearly. I'm sure our listeners will very much appreciate it. Thank you very much. That was Robert Lang from the European Southern Observatory and at Eris, Roy and I also caught up with Will and Ban from Astron. So as radio astronomers, we're kind of constantly battling for our frequencies. Mm -hmm. Could you tell us a little bit about what's being done to conserve certain frequencies for astronomers? Well, there are an, uh, a number of uh, people that uh, sacrifice their time and their uh, resources to uh, to go to meetings where um, these issues are being discussed. Of course, we are a non-profit organizations, and uh, we're always dealing with people who uh, who have dollar signs in their eyes. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, uh, so the, it's not a level playing field, and uh, very often we go there as a few uh, a few astronomers, and we're surrounded by dozens of lawyers from different companies. Um, so we are we are by being at meetings where decisions are being made, we protect or we try to defend the radio astronomy bands. Now the problem with radio astronomy is that we are very sensitive. We have the best receivers around, we have um, cryogenically cooled receivers, so we are very sensitive to the smallest signals, and very uh, uh, mobile phones, they are they're not the best technology. I mean, they're, they're, they work and they're very fancy, but they're not, when it comes to receiving technology, they're not always the best. So we are much more vulnerable 
to interference. And uh, we have, in at various frequencies, we have a number of bands that are allocated to, uh, to radio astronomy for passive use, because we are not transmitting. So these are passive bands, and we are trying to keep them passive. And very often what you have is you have, a, you have an active service that transmits, and if the transmission is not clean, it puts signals also in our bands. So we have to protect, make sure that the, the adjacent services do not uh, affect our, our observing capability. Now, a lot, of, a lot of this is happening in Europe. It's happening in each, each individual country. There are agencies that deal with spectrum use because the military is using spectrum and the communication services are, and we are part of the user community. Uh, some countries are more sensitive towards, uh, passive use, scientific use. Other countries are a little bit less, uh, less uh, sensitive. In each country there is also a European organization called the, uh, Aero European Radio Office, where in the CEPT, the uh, the, the organization of post and telecom uh, telegraph uh, services, telephone services, uh, basically all the the, the Ofcoms of of Europe, and uh, they talk together and make new rules and, and and try to deal with situations and try to deal with interference situations, and uh, Europe is producing rulings within Europe that apply in Europe they're all working within the framework of a of uh, something called the ITU the uh, International Telecommunication Union which is based in Geneva there the international laws or the rules for international the internationally accepted rules they are being established there and all the individual countries sign up to use these rules so we are sitting in the middle of all of this, trying to protect and preserve as much as we can. Uh, it's getting more and more difficult. Uh, the bands below one gigahertz are very difficult to operate in. The higher frequencies, of course, we are having new telescopes like ALMA and SMA. They are very often on mountaintops, and there is nobody living on the mountaintop, so we are there alone. Uh, so it is relatively easy to protect those regions by having geographical sharing. In the valley, you can do what you want to do. We we want to have it quiet up on the mountaintop, and and those concepts are being they're being uh, adopted internationally as well. Okay, so it's not all bad. Maybe to give us a feeling, what fraction of the whole frequency spectrum um, is reserved for astronomy in in the Western European countries? It's only a few percent, unfortunately. Uh, the reason that these bands were, were preserved is that they are very often uh, harmonic bands for continuum observations and specific bands like the uh, 1400 MHz band for neutral hydrogen. Now, what has changed in the meantime is that radio astronomy has become so sensitive that we now also find these same things in other galaxies. And as we know, Doppler shift plays a game here. So somewhere, uh, suddenly we are, we are kind of observing everywhere in the spectrum. So due to the Doppler shift of the 
galaxies who are moving away from us, the frequency of the emissions moves through the whole spectrum. Yes. Right? It comes down in frequency. So suddenly we are, we are not confi- we cannot confine ourselves anymore to these allocated bands. So we are moving into bands that are allocated to other services. Well, because we don't interfere with them, we can operate them. Yeah? But we are not protected. So suddenly we are moving into bands that are not protected, where there's no protection, and we have to try to live with the interference that we, we have there. So suddenly the whole spectrum is, has become of interest because we are now starting to observe at the redshift six, redshift one, yeah, going higher and higher each year. So the, uh, the, the, the problem is, is becoming more and more difficult. And uh, we are. We also need to. The observatories around the world need to start investing in in automatic uh, uh, flagging of data, uh, interference flagging, and trying to get rid of the interference as much as possible, so we can look through all of that and still see the signals we we are looking for. How far away from a telescope do you have to be so that a mobile phone won't interfere? Because I know at Jodrell Bank you tell people to turn off their phones, but there's, there's a train that runs right next to the Lovell telescope. And then when you have interferometers like Merlin or the GMRT in India where you just have antenna yes. in the middle of nowhere, how do you know how far away people have to be? In the middle of nowhere is changing very rapidly. You <laughs> mentioned the GMRT. There is a road running along the GMRT and slowly industry is moving up on the road and uh, 10 years ago it was very, uh, relatively quiet and now it's a noisy span, noisy situation. So things are, things are changing continuously. Depend, the, the, the exclusion zones become larger going to lower frequencies. So you're, you're talking about if, if you really do not want to see in a mobile phone, you should at least say 10 kilometers away or, uh, you know, which is not feasible. Yeah? So the only thing we can do is on the on the premises of the the terrain of the observatory, you can forbid it, and then very often people leave their standby function on, and <laughs> yeah, which means that they're still transmitting to the tower every so so often. It's becoming more and more difficult because more and more of the spectrum is being used, as you said, the train is uh, is running, uh, although it is in a gully. It's not um, on the terrain level. It's in a, in a, in a tunnel or so. <clears throat> you have to start dealing with these things. And one of the rules that we have uh, we have used is that it should not be more than five percent of the time. So there are systems that cannot avoid interfering with with the radio astronomy band. And if that is the case, then we put a limit in percentage of time. So in other words, 5% for a whole system or 2% for a single transmitter. And that we can deal with by editing and, and throwing data out. All interference that we encounter means data loss for radio astronomy. So that is something that radio astronomers in the future will have to be more and more aware of. We, will, we have to become very aware of it. And... Uh, I'm I'm worrying very much about it, and, uh, but the younger generation will have to take over uh, protecting their spectrum because uh, it's a constant avalanche. And <coughs> when money is involved, I mean, the fir- the, one of the first things that uh, active services do, if they have a new system, 
they want to put it in the radio astronomy bands. <laughs> because the radio astronomy bands are not being used. They're being used by us, but passively. We don't transmit. So they're empty bands. So they're the cleanest bands, so they want to be in there. And right now what we are seeing is uh, systems like ultra-wideband systems, where instead of a narrow transmission, they have one gigahertz of bandwidth, very low power, but over one gigahertz. Well, that means that it just sweeps across the radio astronomy bands. Uh, there are other systems coming online that look for empty space in the spectrum, and they transmit there. And then 10 seconds later, they look for another empty spot in this band. So where would they go? The radio astronomy bands, because theirs are empty. So these are cognitive radio systems uh, where that are now coming on the market, and, and we have to be f extremely careful. So the, uh, the the younger astronomers will have to start pulling their weight. <laughs> okay, well, I think that will be a very big challenge for the next Absolutely. generation then. Okay, well, thank you very much for this interview. Very good. Thank you. Thanks, Jen and Roy. Now, as you all should know by now, 2009 has been the International Year of Astronomy. And to celebrate, there are a couple of events happening in October. Stuart, what do we got? Well, coming up in the middle of October is Galilean Night, which is an International Year of Astronomy cornerstone project. So all around the world, people will be going outside to observe the Galilean satellites orbiting Jupiter. And in the UK, we're having Moonwatch, which is taking place over an entire week because in the UK, our weather isn't that reliable. So we need a week in order to, to look up into the sky. And we're having Moonwatch, so not only will we be looking at the Galilean moons, we'll be looking at our own moon as well, which is a lot easier to do. You can do that with the naked eye or with binoculars. The moon looks really, really nice through binoculars. Mm -hmm. So that will be taking place from the 24th of October to the 1st of November. And hopefully we'll have an interview with Steve Owens, who's the... UK IYA 2009 coordinator on the October Extra edition of the Jodcast. Now with more news from the moon, here's Jen. Some of you might remember a few months ago we covered the launch of NASA's LCOS and LRO, which are two spacecraft that have gone up to the moon. And LCOS is quite an exciting project. It's going to impact into the moon, and that's scheduled for the 9th of October at 12.30pm BST. And actually, the it's going to impact just after the Centaur-A rocket that launched it, which is due to impact a, a little bit before, and that will crash into the moon, throw up a huge plume of material from the surface of the moon after the impact, and then LCROSS dive bombs through the plume, has a whole load of science packages on board which will analyse the contents of the plume, and then LCROSS itself crashes into the moon slightly later. So from the Earth... We're hoping to, there might be a flash that's visible. It, you probably need a telescope. And from the UK, it's not the best observing time. It's 12.30, just after lunchtime in the UK, which means that it is daytime. So if you're going to observe the moon, especially if you're using any kind of optical aid, like a pair of binoculars or a telescope, then make sure that you don't look at the sun with them. It's incredibly dangerous, so make sure you're very careful. And because it's daytime, it means that we won't be able to see very much. And also, the moon will be very low on the horizon from the UK, so we aren't best placed, but if you're in other parts of the world, you might get a better view. And if you're lucky enough to be in the States for this, there are impact parties happening all over the country. Uh, the NASA website has details of these and advice for if you want to hold your own event, so we'll put a link to that in the show notes. And one other thing we should say about this impact and the observations that LCROSS will do, it will help confirm some of the material on the surface of the moon, which will add to the data we just got in just over the last few days as we record this from Chandrayaan-1, 
we mentioned Chandrayaan one on the previous Jodcast that we'd lost communication with it. We were we were saying that there'd be some science results soon, and we were right. They they turned up between the last issue and this issue, and and as Megan said on the news, there's evidence of hydroxyl, that's hydrogen and oxygen, combined together in the polar regions of the moon. So there you go. That's the Jodcast keeping you on the pulse of astronomy as it happens. And now also keeping us on the pulse of astronomy, here's Ian Morrison to tell us what's up in the October night sky. Well, the nights are getting longer as we come into October, which means that you don't have to stay up quite so late. And also, of course, that you can get up not too early in the morning to see some of the rather lovely morning objects that we have, as we shall see later on. However, let's just start with the stars and constellations one can see sort of mid-evening in October. Fairly high towards the south is the constellation of Pegasus, the winged horse, actually upside down, with his mane and head down to the lower right. Up to the left of the square of Pegasus, the top left-hand star being Alpha Andromedae, which of course is in the constellation of Andromeda, in there you can actually find a rather lovely object, M31, the Andromeda Galaxy. And if you go into the night sky page of the Jodrell Bank Observatory website, just put that into Google, you'll find some instructions of how to find it either from the Square of Pegasus or coming down from the constellation of Cassiopeia, which is just above. Between Cassiopeia and Perseus is a rather lovely region of rich sky, which contains the double cluster. Very nice in binoculars, even better in a small telescope where you can see both of these clusters in the same field of view. Perseus has another nice interesting object. It's a star called Algol, which is actually an eclipsing binary. And every few days the brightness drops by a magnitude or so. And if you happen to know, and many of the magazines give you the times at which that's going to happen, it's quite fun to compare its brightness with its surrounding stars. Below Pegasus is a little circlet, the head of one of the fishes in Pisces. Just below that, as we shall see, is in fact the planet Uranus. Down to the left of Pisces is Cetus the whale, and to the right, Aquarius. Not an awful lot in that part of the sky. Up to the right of Pegasus is that lovely region of the sky containing the constellations of Cygnus the Swan, Lyra the Lyre, and Aquila the Eagle. They're bright stars, Deneb, Vega, and Altair, making up what I think Sir Patrick Moore called the Summer Triangle. Very, very rich region. And just down to the lower left of Cygnus the Swan, tiny little constellation, Delphinus the Dolphin. Very nice one, just a spot. Okay, well, what about the planets this month? Well, it's actually not a bad month. The only planet you can see in the evening sky is, of course, Jupiter, it's lying in Capricornus. It's easily visible. It really dominates the south-eastern part of the sky in the evening. We've had lots of phone calls saying, what is that bright object I see in the sky? It has an angular size of about 45 arc seconds, which means that with a small telescope, you can easily make out the equatorial bands and spot the moons of Jupiter. There's a highlight come out about those later on. At the moment, of course, though, Jupiter is very low in the ecliptic. It's only reaching about 22, 23 degrees above the horizon, and therefore we're seeing it through quite a thick atmosphere, which means that the images we get aren't really quite so clear as they sometimes are. On the 26th of October, Jupiter is just below to the right 
of the moon two days after first quarter. Might be a nice thing to look at. Well, the other planets we see are in the morning sky. Um, Saturn reappears in the pre-dawn sky during October and actually gets better as we move towards the end of the month. has a magnitude of plus 1.1, which is not as bright as it normally is because the rings are virtually edge-on and therefore they're not reflecting any of the sunlight towards us. In fact, it arises about 4 in the morning UT, about 3 hours before the sun. Again, a small telescope will easily show Saturn's largest moon, Titan, and uh, a bigger telescope, you can actually spot several more. Well, Mercury is also in the morning sky. It reaches what is called Western Elongation, and that's when it's at its greatest angular distance from the Sun before dawn on October the 6th, so just a few days into the month. It's actually the most favourable dawn apparition this year, because the ecliptic is aligned at a reasonable angle to the horizon. So in fact Mercury will be about 15 degrees above the horizon and in fact in company with Venus and Saturn as we shall see later on. So do have a go at spotting Mercury in the morning sky and I'll give you a particular day to try later on. Now Mars is becoming more prominent in the morning sky. It rises at about 10.30 uh, UT in the middle of the month. It's actually in Gemini at the beginning of October, but on the 12th it actually moves into Cancer. As we get nearer to it, as we sort of come round on the inside track, its magnitude is increasing slowly, 0.7 to plus 0.8 in magnitude, whilst the angular size also increases from about 6.8 arc seconds. It's due south, which means it'll be roughly highest in the sky at about 6.30 UT in mid-month. So you can see it if you're willing to get up reasonably early in the morning. And by now the size is such that with a small telescope you should begin to see some of the more prominent features such as Certis Major. Well that just leaves Venus. It's now drawing closer to the Sun and it's on the far side and it can be seen low in the east rising a couple of hours before sunrise. It's going to be close to a very thin crescent moon on the 16th of October. The angular size, because it's so far away, is only about 10 arc seconds. The phase is getting almost to full. It, it actually increases from 90 to 95% during the month. But of course, by the end of the month, it'll be increasingly lost in the sun's glare. Magnitude stays at 3.8 during the month. Minus 3.8, I should say. Well, what about the highlights this month? There are actually quite a few. Um, I mentioned Uranus. It's lying just below the circulars of Pisces, and a good time to search for it is obviously around New Moon, which is about the 18th of October. Um, it was at opposition, which means it would be highest in the sky about midnight on September the 17th. So, in fact, it's now highest in the sky a little bit earlier than that, which helps. It has a magnitude of plus 5.7, which actually means that under perfectly good dark skies and transparent skies, you could perhaps see it with your unaided eye. But I suspect you'll probably need a pair of binoculars or a small telescope. Anyway, there's a chart on the night sky page to show you how to find it. Well, I've mentioned that three of the planets are in the morning sky. On October the 10th, they actually make quite a nice little line in the pre-dawn sky. Venus, Saturn and Mercury will be close together. By the 16th, they'll have separated somewhat, but are joined by the waning crescent moon. That, if clear, that will make a very nice skyscape. 
I've mentioned that you can find Andromeda quite easily at the present time, so have a go at that. Oh, on the 7th of October, a, a gibbous moon passes just below the Pleiades cluster. Now, it's fairly bright, so it will actually probably need binoculars to see the Pleiades, but together they should look really rather nice. Now, I mentioned Jupiter. At the moment, Jupiter's equator, and hence the plane of the satellites that's aligned with it is actually containing the Earth, which means, of course, that at times one of the satellites will be seen to pass in front of another, sort of forming an eclipse. And there are two nice events this October. On the 10th of October at 9.44 BST, there's an eclipse of Europa by Io. And on the 16th of October, Ganymede will eclipse Europa at 1010 BST. So quite a lot of these mutual events of the satellites during this month just because the plane is literally uh, in line with us. Well we have one of our first autumnal meteor showers in October. Around October the 21st they're called the Orionids because in fact the radiant, that is where they appear to come from, is up to the left of the constellation of Orion. They're best seen in the hours before dawn, when Orion's high in the southern sky. And as you look sort of more or less straight up where the atmosphere is least, you've got more chance of seeing them. You don't get an awful lot, perhaps 20 per hour, but they're fairly constant and they're very fast. They leave sometimes some quite persistent trains, little streaks of ionized gas as the incoming dust particles burn up in the atmosphere. So it's well worth having a look around the 21st. By that time, happily, although we're coming away from New Moon, which is around the 18th, the Moon is setting really quite soon after sunset, certainly in the early evening, and the best time to observe the Orionids is after midnight or around midnight. So there should be no problem from the Moon. It's a good year, so give it a try. Well, now something for those that live in the Southern Hemisphere, but I shall mention an interesting object Centaurus A it's called, which may be of interest to those who actually live in the Northern Hemisphere as well. Okay, well of course your nights, in contrast to ours, are getting shorter. But you actually look towards the north, you actually see Cygnus fairly low above the horizon with Lyra in the northwest. Uh, Delphinus the dolphin is higher up towards the uh, zenith of your sky. Over in the northeastern sky is Pegasus, which for you, of course, is the right way up. Andromeda, sadly, is just about below the northeastern horizon, so not too good. The circlet of Pisces is well visible, so there's a good chance of finding Uranus. And then you've got Aquila the Eagle up to the left as well. So not a bad sky. And then higher up, getting towards the zenith, is the wonderful constellation of Sagittarius, along with Scorpius is looking towards the heart of our galaxy, the Milky Way. Looking south, which of course is the area of sky that we cannot see, you've got the Milky Way stretching from the south over towards the southwest. Very, very rich part of the Milky Way with Carina and Crooks and Centaurus are basically rising from the south towards the southwest. I've talked about those quite a lot earlier in the year. East of south, you can see with binoculars on a dark night, maybe just with your eyes, the large Magellanic cloud. And just to the lower right is a rather lovely region of the LMC called the Tarantula Nebula. 
30 Doradus is another name, the name given, in fact, to a rather nice star cluster within it. It's a very lovely object, of course. And looking up towards the zenith from the large Magellanic Cloud, you, of course, come to the small Magellanic Cloud with nearby fantastic globular cluster 47 Tucani. But the object I'd just like to mention is fairly low in the southwest, but could be found. Um, it's called Centaurus A. Now, there are two bright stars in Centaurus, obviously Alpha, Alpha Centauri, and then Beta Centauri. They point down towards the Southern Cross. If instead of following from Alpha Centauri to Beta Centauri towards Crooks, the Southern Cross, you do a sort of a 45-degree right turn, you come down to another bright star, beyond which you may well see a little fuzzy object, which is Omega Centauri, I talked about last month. Beyond that, there's another seventh managed object, so binoculars are needed, called Centaurus A. And Centaurus A is a very, very interesting galaxy. We believe it is the merger of two galaxies, perhaps within the last one billion years. That has caused a lot of star formation to go on, and there's a very, very thick dust lane. Now, it's got the name Centaurus A because that was the name given to it when it was discovered to be a very strong radio source, the strongest radio source in that constellation. And it was discovered in Australia, and we believe there's a massive black hole, a supermassive black hole at its centre. Material falling into that gives rise to beams of particles, which then, in fact, produce radiation. And there are two great lobes of radiation on either side of the galaxy. But it looks really very impressive if you've got anything like a sort of a 6 to 10 inch telescope. So have a go, have a look at Centaurus A. Well, good hunting. Thanks for that, Ian. Now, some of you might be surprised to hear that our good old Professor Morrison is actually of retirement age, and as we record this, retired yesterday. He did indeed. We had a, a nice party to, to celebrate his retirement here at Jodrell Bank. But fear not, because he will still continue to do his night sky slots for the Jodcast, and he continues to be the outreach officer for the Square Kilometre Array and Gresham Professor of Astronomy. Yeah, astronomers don't really retire, they just move into smaller offices. <laughs> What, you mean like this recording studio? <laughs> How close are we to retirement then? Very. <laughs> so this is the first time that Dave has actually experienced our very own Jogcast studio here. <laughs> I'm not sure that he's quite impressed with it. So now that I've told you what I think about the studio, let's move on to what you think about the show. And we've had plenty of feedback from the uh, Jogcast forums. Thank you very much for, for getting on there. Earth Unit says that the mid-month show inspired them to go out and buy a new MP3 player, thus helping to stimulate the economy. And uh, we, we had the comment, which we used for our music voiceover, uh, I can see the headlines in tomorrow's newspaper, Jodcast revives the world's economy. And also on the forum we had a comment on the September Extra show notes from Stella, who did some research of their own on the object near the International Space Station that was mentioned on Ask an Astronomer in the September Extra edition. And Stella says it all depends whether the midnight referred to was the midnight on July the 12th to 13th or the midnight on July the 13th to 14th. If it was the former, as they suspect, then the culprit appears to be the Progress M-02M, which is a cargo craft that has been performing docking practice with the International Space Station. 
Um, if the latter, then that progress had been deorbited and would not have been in the vicinity. So they aren't sure if it was the second night what it would have been. But thanks for doing that, Stella. And with news from the ISS, Joe the Oak has uh, taken a picture of the ISS and has posted it on Flickr, and we'll put that in the show notes. Now, someone else that's been out with their telescope is Rapid Eye, who has been listening to the Jodcast while out in the pasture with uh, their 10-inch Dobsonian, and has been tracking and monitoring some very dark spots and streaks that have become very prominent on Jupiter over the last month or so. And I think Rapid Eye says these aren't the impacts from the recent comet or asteroid that hit Jupiter that was spotted by an amateur astronomer from Australia, and thinks these are weather-related in Jupiter's atmosphere. I, I think it's probably monolith-related, getting ready for next year. <laughs> 2010. <laughs> yep. A space odyssey. The year we make contact. And Nick Johnson says, It's good to hear Roy back again and answering questions. If any one of you could nick his passport, then he can't leave again. Unfortunately, he's already gone, so... <laughs> It's a bit difficult. You stuck with us for the time being. And we actually have feedback from Facebook this month. Uh, we had a wall post from Robert H. Nunnally Jr., who said, Thank you for the excellent September special edition. And he used to live near the Mount Wilson Observatory and was glad to hear our update on the fire. And he'll be off to donate to the rescue fund. So thanks for that. And please keep posting on there. <laughs> I think he also said he was happy that the woodlands and woodland squirrels were safe as well. Mm-hmm. We have to think about the squirrels. Yes. And over on Twitter, we were sent a direct message saying, please instruct your readers that there is no such element as aluminium. It makes you sound ignorant, but they still like the Jodcast. Um, we'd quite like to point out that actually the British way to pronounce the element is aluminium. Mm-hmm. And according to that most trusted of sources, Wikipedia, the International Union of Pure and Applied Chemistry, or UPAC, adopted aluminium as the standard international name for the element in 1990, but three years later recognised aluminium as an acceptable variant. UPAC officially prefers the use of aluminium in its internal publications. So actually it would appear that both pronunciations of the word, and spellings indeed, are both acceptable. And another correction from uh, Knusper2000 May I correct you, the new instrument on Hubble is called the Wide Field Camera 3, not Wide Field Planetary Camera 3. And that's our fault. We got so attached to Wide Field Planetary Camera 2 that it's very difficult to remove those words from our brains. So we are unfortunately misnaming Wide Field Camera 3. But thank you, ev- uh, thanks to everyone for actually getting in touch and for using the forum and Facebook. And you can, of course, get in touch with us via the website at www.jodcast.net. You can go to the forum at forum.jodcast.net. You can view our videos on YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. You can go to Facebook at jodcast.net slash Facebook. And we're on Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. And before we round up, we should mention that we recently received a grant of £3,000 from the UK's Science and Technology Facilities Council, that's STFC, to help cover the Jodcast until next July. So a huge thanks to the people at STFC in the difficult financial times they're going through. In the intro and outro, Bruce Busby was Lord Dracula, Helen Cashin was Jennifer Harker, and the script was by David Alt. Thanks also to Robert Lang and Willem Barn, and the editors for this episode were Adam Averson and Sarah Bryan. And so that brings the October issue of the Jodcast to an end, and we'll be back for the October Extra Edition, but until next time, Jod on. Bye. Bye, everyone. Lord Dracula, are you all right? I, I am very well, my dear. Your 
Jodcast is most informative. I thought you'd like it. I'm going to send in my reports from here. The astronomical community will be blown away by this news. Do you really think so? Yes. And you have enough rooms here to host an astrofest. Imagine the star parties. Well, I suppose I could. You've got an astronomy tourism oil well right here. Dracula, let's go into business. I don't mind if I do. Thanks very much. <laughs>